Well, this summer we've been studying the Psalms uh, together as a church. And today we're going to look at Psalm 62, uh, which has a lot to say about insecurity and where our true security lies. Let's face it, we live in a beautiful but broken world. A world where good things disintegrate, break down, and fall apart. Accidents happen. Marriages end in divorce. People get laid off from their jobs. Friendships full of promise begin, and then they end. You know, we see this stuff happen. We know that our world is like this, and consequently, we are looking for something or for someone to make us feel safe and secure. Okay, this is the first part of today's sermon. We live in a beautiful but broken world, a world where good things fall apart. And knowing this, we are looking for something or someone to make us safe and secure. If you have your Bibles, why don't you open them up to Psalm 62? We're going to begin by looking at verses 3 and 4. If you open up your Bibles, Psalm 62, 3 and 4, there David writes, How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Okay, in these verses, David is describing the fear and frustration that accompanies betrayal. Okay, very likely, David is talking about people who are close to him. Okay, they could be family members or they could be former friends. Friends and family, these are good things. But in David's case, these good things are breaking down and they're falling apart. Friends and family members are betraying him. They're lying to him and they're cursing him in his heart. And so David compares these people to a leaning wall and a tottering fence. Now think about this with me for a moment. Why do you build a wall or why do you build a fence? Okay, you build a wall or you build a fence to protect you. You build a wall or a fence to support you, to make you safe and secure, right? And you build these things to last, but when they don't last, the consequences can be crushing. You know, maybe you know what this is like. You know, you overhear a friend who's now spreading rumors about you. After many years of marriage, your spouse wants a divorce. After working at your job for a long time, they've laid you off. That house that you've poured so much time and money and energy into, it turns out it has termites and it's been rotting from the inside. You know, friends and spouses, your, your job and your home, these are all good things. But in this beautiful but broken world, okay, this world of ours where good things do fall apart, things that ought to last don't necessarily. And isn't it true that the closer we are to these things, when they begin to break down and disintegrate and fall apart, the greater the threat we feel, the more in danger we feel when these things that ought to support us and ought to lift us up begin to fall down. We feel afraid and we feel insecure. You know, this is the world that we live in. Okay, this is what the world is presently like. Good things fall apart. They don't always last. And the greatest evidence of this is death. Look at verse 9 with me. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. 
and the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Low estate, high estate, rich and poor, it doesn't matter. All of us are going to die. Okay, this is an inescapable reality. At some point or another, our lives are going to end. And death feels like a thief. You know, it takes away the things that we love the most, and it is inescapable. And this heightens the sense that a lot of us feel of being vulnerable and exposed, of being unsafe and insecure. Well, in this seemingly chaotic situation where good things fall apart, where good things are taken from us, even our very own lives, I think it's safe to say that we want stability. You know, we want something to make us feel safe and secure. And so very often, the place where we go to looking for security is not God, but it's, it's wealth, it's riches, it's money. You know, so... Um, So often, many of us believe, if only I had more money, then all of these problems would go away. If only I had more money, then these problems would go away. Now, some of us pursue riches the right and respectable way. You know, we work hard and we provide a valuable service. Other people pursue riches the wrong way. You know, they use extortion, they rob and they steal. But however you obtain riches, David says, if riches increase, don't set your heart on them. Why does he say that? Well, for starters, our riches are not that secure in and of themselves. We feel insecure, but our riches themselves are not that secure. You know, anybody who had a lot of money in the stock market when, it, when the bubble burst about a decade ago can tell you all about that. You know, the market is booming one day and it's busting the other. You know, your money, whether it's hidden in a bank account or stuffed in a mattress back at home, is not immune from the fluctuations in the stock market. Our money is not really that secure. So it's kind of silly to look to it for security. Two, riches cannot protect you from heartache, fear, loneliness, or betrayal. You know, in some ways, having lots of money only increases the likelihood of heartache, fear, loneliness, and betrayal. You know, when I was in high school, there was a popular uh, song on the radio, depending on what station you were listening to. It was a, a, a song by a rapper named Biggie Smalls, and the song was called More Money, More Problems. And the chorus went like this. He said, I don't know what they want from me. It's like the more money we come across, the more problems we see. In Biggie Smalls' case, that was actually true. More money did mean more problems. More money meant more access to drugs and sex and alcohol. Greater exposure to all of those things and greater availability to pursue those temptations. More money meant more problems. It meant more people to always question, are these people really my friends or are they just after my stuff? And more money meant more enemies. In 1994, he told the New York Times that he was disliked for having more money, which came with his fame. And Biggie told his interviewer that he said that he jumped whenever the door to his apartment building opened because he was afraid that there was someone on the other side of that door who wanted to hurt him. And it turns out he was right. He was gunned down at the age of 24. Friends, money cannot protect you from heartache, loneliness, betrayal. It can't protect you from sickness or death. People, rich people get caught up in violence. 
Rich people get stuck in accidents. Rich people get cancer. Rich people die. You know, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, the, the, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, they're all going to die. And no matter how much money you or I accumulate in this lifetime, we're going to die too. So our lives are seemingly chaotic. You know, things fall apart, our, our very own bodies even. And knowing this, we want something to protect us, something to make us feel safe and secure. And we often think money is a thing that's going to protect me and save me. But friends, it doesn't, it can't, and it won't. So where does our security really lie? Where does our security really lie? Well, David answers that question for us in verses 1 and 2 and 5 and 7 of this psalm. He says in those verses, God is my rock, my fortress, my refuge, my salvation. Friends, he's our rock, our fortress, our refuge, our salvation. We can rest secure in him. Okay, that's the second point of today's sermon. Okay, God is our rock, he's our fortress, he's our refuge, he's our salvation. We can rest secure in him. Well, listen to the metaphors that David uses to describe God in Psalm 62. In these verses 1, 2, and 7. He says, God is my rock, my fortress, my refuge, my salvation. First of all, notice how David describes God in this very personal way. He's my rock. He's my fortress. He doesn't say God is a rock, a fortress, a refuge, a salvation. No, he's my rock. He's my fortress, my refuge, my salvation. That's to say this knowledge of God is not an abstraction. It's very, very personal. He didn't read these metaphors in some sort of book. He knows God as this way from personal experience. That's to say that this knowledge of God is very personal for him. He's my rock. You know, he's my refuge. I can go to him. My mighty rock and fortress. When I think of these two words, I, I do think of them together. And I often think that the first image that comes to my mind is the rock of Gibraltar. I don't know if you've ever seen an, an image of it, but it's this giant rock formation, these giant cliffs that are jutting into the Strait of Gibraltar right off the southern coast of Spain. And at the top of this rock is this impenetrable fortress. You know, despite long sieges, this fortress has never been taken. And its history has inspired the saying, uh, solid as the rock of Gibraltar, which is another way of saying a person or a situation that cannot be overcome and doesn't fail. Someone who is solid as the rock of Gibraltar cannot be overcome, does not fail. It's immovable. It's invincible. It's strong. It's steady. It's sure. It is secure. You know, somewhat ironically, Prudential Financial uses the rock of Gibraltar uh, in their logo. And by picking this as their logo, what are they trying to communicate? They're communicating, we are strong, safe, secure, reliable. Your money is safe with us. Okay, it's a powerful symbol. I've got nothing against Prudential Financial. Okay, it's, it's probably a very good company. But the, the truth of the matter is that our riches are never that secure. Okay, they are subject to decay. Moth and rust destroy them. You know, we can't take our money with us in, into the next life. Therefore, we don't want to base our life on them. 
You know, they're not a good rock uh, beneath our feet. But God, on the other hand, he's not going anywhere. Right? He was there before we showed up, and he's going to be there long after. He's eternal. And his character is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yeah, he is a rock. He's fixed. Furthermore, he's strong and he's powerful. He's like a fortress. He is safe and he is secure. Right? God is my rock. He's my fortress. He's also, David says, my refuge. And refuge means a hiding place. It's a place of protection and safety. And he says, because of this, because God is my rock, my fortress, my refuge, I shall not be greatly shaken. And then he says, I shall not be shaken at all. But there's another metaphor that David uses to describe God and the psalm, and I've saved it for last. If you look at verses 2 and 6 with me, you'll see there in those verses that, God, or that David addresses God also as my salvation. Now, how is this word different from the three that preceded it? Rock, fortress, refuge. All of these things are passive in the sense that they are something that you've got to run to. But when David says, God is my salvation, well, that's something that's active. Okay, salvation is synonymous with help, deliverance, rescue. You know, you run to a rock, fortress, or refuge, but your salvation runs and finds you. Your salvation looks for you, it finds you, and it rescues you. So if you can use your imagination a little bit, the portrait that David is actually sort of painting here of God is almost like that of a castle with eyes and arms and legs who looks for you and runs to you and then plants itself around you. God is a a rock, a fortress, a refuge. He's a salvation who comes and he finds you and he protects you. You don't have to run to it. He's going to come to you. It's awesome. Well, this brings me to my third and final point. Sensing our chaotic situation, sensing our frailty and insecurity. And we can get really busy trying to make ourselves feel safe and secure, can't we? You know, but the truth of the matter is that we cannot make ourselves more safe or more secure. Ultimately, we can't save ourselves. But we can rest secure because, not because of something that we've done, but because of something God has done. The reason we can rest secure is because of what God has done for us. We can rest secure because God has taken on flesh to save us. And that's the third part of this sermon. We can rest secure because God has taken on flesh to save us. Remember what I just said about God being this moving sort of castle, right? This rock fortress refuge that looks for you and finds you and sort of plants itself around you like a hedge of protection. That's, that's a picture of who Jesus is. You know, in Jesus, God took on flesh to save lost, broken, insecure, and hurting people. People like you and, and yeah, people like me. You know, God knows our frailty. He knows our sin. And he knows our hurt. He knows how we feel, right? Vulnerable and hurt. He's moved by these things. That's why he came to earth. He came to earth to deal with our sins once and for all. He came to earth to reconcile us to himself, 
He came to earth to bring his loved ones back into his family, back into his home, where we all feel comfortable and safe. The way that God accomplished this is by becoming a human being. Okay, And he lived as a human being. He did everything that we are supposed to do but could not do. He lived a perfect life so we could have a perfect record before God our Father. He gives that record to us as a gift. Right? He took all of our sins upon himself where they were punished in his body at the cross. Because of that, there is no more punishment left for us. Our sins are forgiven. And then he was raised from the grave because of his perfection. Neither death nor the devil have a claim on him and they don't have a claim on you when you put your faith and trust in him. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you will live forever. You don't have to be afraid of death. Pay attention to the verbs in this psalm. Look at what God does and look at what we are supposed to do. In verse 1, it says that God brings salvation. In verse 5, it says that God brings hope. In our chaos, in the midst of all of our insecurity, God is the active one in this psalm. He's the one who's doing stuff. And he's bringing help, he's bringing deliverance, he's bringing salvation, and he's bringing hope. Jesus, friends, is this moving castle who is coming to save you, who has come to save you. And that is why you can rest secure in him. Well, if that is what God is doing in this psalm, what is, what is it that we are supposed to do? You know, what are the verbs that are uh, sort of put on us? You know, what is it that we are supposed to do? Well, it says in verse 1 and 5 that we are supposed to wait in silence. The first thing we're to do is wait in silence. Friends, this doesn't mean not praying. Waiting in silence is not the same thing as not praying. In a moment, David's going to say that we ought to pour our hearts out before him. That is, we ought to pray. So what does it mean to wait in silence? Waiting in silence means giving up control. Or should I say giving up the illusion of control. It means stop trying to control everything. Stop trying to manage everything. You know, have you ever been stuck in an airport terminal waiting for your connecting flight to arrive? Was there anything you could do at that moment? Is there anything that you could say that would actually get that plane to land sooner? You know, this just happened for us. We were just flying back from Atlanta. We were at Newark Airport. There was nothing that we could say or do, Megan or I, there was nothing we could say or do that would get that plane there any faster. And at the same time, there's nothing we could say or do that would make it get there any later. We had absolutely no control over it. All we could do is wait in Newark quietly, wait in silence. It's coming. Wait for it. And our salvation's a lot like that. We're to wait for our salvation quietly. We don't have control over it. It's not something that we can earn or achieve or manage or manipulate. It's something that God gives us as a gift. It's something that we receive. Okay? And God has promised to do it. He says, I'm going to bring this to you. I'm going to save you, and I'm going to heal this broken world. I promise. So we wait. This brings us to our second verb here in Psalm 62. We're to trust. It says that we are, in verse 8, that we are to trust in God at all times. You know, throughout the scriptures, God has promised to save his people and to set this broken world to rights. If you want to know what the Bible is, it's, it's not a rule book. It's a st- though there are rules in it, okay? It's a story of a good world that's gone bad. And it's a story about God's promises to set it right 
And it's a story of how he has made good on his promises by sending us his son. The Bible is a story that is meant to inspire trust in him. We're to trust God. He's bringing our salvation, which we're waiting for. And as we wait, we trust. And we're to trust in him at all times. Good days and bad. You know, there are times in our life when it's easy to trust God, when everything seems to be going our way, right? There are also times in our life when it feels like nothing is going right, when everything is falling apart. But we can trust God. What do we say? He's like a rock, right? (laughs) He's steady. He's sure. He's secure. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's made promises to save you, and he's not going to break them. He loves you, and he loves me. And he is with us, so we can trust him. And this brings us to our third and final verb, the things that we are supposed to do, right? We're to pour our heart out before him. We're to pray. We can talk to God. He's there. He can hear us. He's immediately present to us at all times. I'm reminded of what Joseph preached on two weeks ago when, he, when we looked at Psalm 139 together. If you were here, if you remember that, or if you weren't here and you just want to flip to Psalm 139, you're free to do so. But in that Psalm, what God is reminding us is that There is nowhere we can go where he's not present to us. We cannot flee from his presence. So trusting in God and trusting in his promised presence encourages us to pour our hearts out before him. Not sprinkle, but pour, you know? We're not just sharing with him, like, the good things. We're sharing with him the bad, the the fears and the anxieties and the doubts that plague us all. God wants to hear those things. And it's true that when we begin to talk about those things with God, God ceases to be an abstraction. He ceases to be a rock, a refuge, a fortress, and he becomes my rock, my refuge, my fortress, my salvation. He becomes very personal for you too. If what I'm saying is true, okay, that God brings salvation, the security we need, and we're supposed to wait for it, Trusting in God and praying to him while we wait, then how, you probably want to know, do we make sense of these last two verses in Psalm 62? How do we interpret verses 11 and 12? Let's read them out loud. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. I read that, I'm like, wait a second. Is this saying that we're saved because we're good people? Are we saved because of our works? Is that what David is saying here at the very end? After this long psalm in which he said, he's, God is the one who brings salvation, are we, is he now contradicting himself? I've wondered that. Maybe you've wondered that as well. Well, the Bible is emphatic, okay, that salvation is by grace, not by our works. You know, it, in Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And David himself just said in this psalm that, he, that God is the one who brings salvation. We didn't earn it. God brings it to us. He gives it to us as a gift. Well, then what does it mean that God is going to render to a man according to his work? And I would just direct you back to the verbs that are applied to us. What are the things that we are supposed to do in the psalm? We're supposed to wait. 
We're supposed to trust. We're supposed to pray. In other words, if I were to summarize all those things, we're supposed to have faith. God is bringing salvation. Our work is the work of faith. Okay? In short, those who have faith, those who trust that God is going to make good on his promise to save will not be disappointed. Okay? God will give us what we need, and God has given us what we need. God has given us Jesus. How might these truths start to affect the way that we live our lives? You know, by way of con- conclusion, let's ask that question. How, how is this going to start to affect the way that we live our lives? Well, let me make just two simple observations. If this truth of all that we've been talking about really seeks deep into our hearts and into the marrow of our bones, we're going to find that we're going to become more generous with our wealth. Why? Well, because our security doesn't lie there. You know, our security is not found in our money. You know, God knows that we need money for clues and, or for clothes and food and shelter. He knows that we need these things, but we're not meant to live for these things. Okay, the reason why we're here in the city or on your particular college campus at this time, at this place, is not to make a lot of money. Right? The reason why you are here is to make visible an invisible God and to share his love and grace with the people you live beside. God wants us to live for him who for our sake became poor so that we might become rich. And since God has done that for us, we want to do the same for others. Okay? Not only can we be generous, we can also be courageous. We can take risks. You know, we can move into that rough part of town. We can go on that mission trip. We can take that new job. We can marry that person. We're free to take risks. Why? Because whether these things succeed or fail, our salvation and our security are not contingent upon it. Our security and our salvation comes from God. When you realize that your salvation is not up to you, okay, you're freed up to take appropriate risks. You don't need to be afraid of failure anymore. Okay, you don't need to be afraid of death. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And God has freed you up and he's freed me up to live lives of generosity and courageous love. And we live in a beautiful but broken world. Okay, a world where good things do fall apart. And knowing this, you and I, we want something that's going to make us feel safe and secure. But let's not go to our wealth and think that we're going to find it there. Instead, our security is found in Jesus. Okay? In Jesus, God took on flesh to save us. He is your rock. He is my rock. He is our fortress. He's our refuge. He is our salvation. We can rest secure in him. Let's pray.